Welcome to the Fox page, where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, PhD in Spanish and French literature, and best-selling author. I cannot wait today to dive into Madeline Miller's uh, very slim, very uh, small, but really mighty short story, Galatea. I'm such a sucker these days for these uh, pieces of shorter fiction that are being packaged in these beautiful, you know, standalone editions. The prime example, of course, is Claire Keegan with her incredible little threesome, not threesome, that sounds really crazy, um, with her incredible trio, Foster, Small Things Like These, and So Late in the Day. It is absolute genius to uh, to, to package them as, uh, you know, standalone volumes, partly because it makes good sense for her uh, in terms of sales. But also, and I really stand by this, and this is not just to get you to buy more books, I love the idea of slowing down and really giving a piece of literature its due, meaning that you should go out and you should read this book. And in fact, if you're in a book club, you should recommend to your book club that you read the book called Galatea by Madeline Miller, which is literally 50 pages long, and there's a lot of white space, and the pages are small. Essentially, what you will be doing is recommending a short story, but it is so good. And I really think that every book club could benefit from digging into one short piece of literature for however long it is that you and your book club talk about a piece of literature. This is an exceptional piece of writing. It is so, so good. And of course, we would expect nothing less from the author of Circe and Song of Achilles, but I was absolutely blown away by Galatea. In fact, um, I just read it this morning and I was like, I have to I have to talk about this. Um, for those of you on YouTube, you can see that I, uh, maybe you can tell, I'm sitting on the floor in my living room. I'm actually sitting on the floor next to what is quite a provocative uh, and I think very beautiful sculpture. This is a sculpture called The Grief of Motherhood, which is interesting because it looks kind of sexualized to me. It is actually by my great-grandfather, Gutson Borglum, who uh, was the man who sculpted Mount Rushmore. Uh, I do not, in fact, really care for Mount Rushmore, both in terms of uh, the fact that it is sculpted into beautiful natural mountains in what is literally some of the most sacred Native American land that, that this country has. I have real problems with that. You can see a piece that I wrote in USA Today a couple of years ago, right after Trump um, was there. I um, actually was in favor of of taking down the monument. I just I don't believe in anything that it stands for. Don't believe in American exceptionalism. Don't believe in manifest destiny. Do not really believe in uh, carving American presidents into beautiful, sacred uh, indigenous land. But I really, really love the sculptures by my great-grandfather. There are a number of them. Um, I'm very, very lucky. Oh my gosh. Also, this... Um, this like cabinet thing behind me, which we always called the Spanish chest growing up, um, was also, it also belonged to my great grandfather in his studio, in fact, which is so cool. So anyway, I'm, I'm steeped here in some history, but mostly I am sitting here next to a sculpture because Galatea has everything to do with sculpture. Um, I want to dive right into this work because there is so much to talk about. First of all, Madeline Miller is just an absolute genius, like just beyond, beyond genius status in my mind. I think she went to Brown um, and then maybe, I don't know, like her PhD is from Harvard or something. You can check that out for yourself. Um, I'm, I am uh, just absolutely wowed by her. 
I actually was lucky enough once um, when I was doing a seminar uh, for on Zoom uh, during COVID to have her come and talk to a class that I was giving. And she is so lovely. And it was really excellent because we were talking about Circe and we were talking about the adaptation of Greek myths. And I am not a myth gal. Like I did not, after sixth grade mythology, I just never really checked in again. I'm not a plot person. So I think that the plot of these stories is really interesting, but I was always more invested in language. And, uh, you know, sometimes the, the, the mythological stories are told in a language that's fairly stripped down and fairly spare and, you know, just fairly plot heavy, which was not that interesting to me. But we had Madeline Miller come on and she, we asked, of course, what she was going to be, what she was working on at the time. And she was talking all about a rewriting of The Tempest. And it turns out that she's also like an incredible Shakespeare scholar. And in fact, at the time, um, she had some big post at some sort of very large Shakespeare, you know, like production thing that was happening. And she was talking all about wanting to do a rewriting of The Tempest. And she said something like, well, you know, because of all the storms, you know, it's very much like Circe. And I do not remember The Tempest. And I was like, oh, yeah, mm, right. Oh, my God. Right. Tempest. I mean, and in my mind, I'm like, obviously, it's called The Tempest, like obviously storms. But I just like I, I just had to really put on like a little bit of a facade there for Madeline Miller just to keep up with the incredible genius of this woman. So we're going to dig into Galatea here. Um, I fully, fully recommend it. Again, I think like book clubs, I think this should be a real feature in the book club uh, year that is coming up. But I also really love the idea of a piece of writing that is so short that you can read it, you can read her incredible afterward, and then you can go back and reread it again. For me as a, as a teacher, it's so delicious because it really will give me the chance this morning to dive into a lot of aspects of the prose. It's very like apprehendable and very comprehendable in ways that are, are so cool because then you can really focus on certain elements and really feel like you have really kind of gripped the whole thing, which is very satisfying because this is actually a very large story, but it's, it's just so satisfying to be able to really feel like you have, have both apprehended and comprehended the whole thing. So, so delightful. Um, I also want to make a quick note. I alluded to the fact that I'm not like a big myth person, but the use of myth and the kind of rewriting of myth, which has become Madeline Miller's kind of bread and butter, as it were, um, it is so genius. And here's why I think it works so well. There are some real like myth heads out there. I mean, I would be so hungry for like a rewriting of, I don't know, like Mrs. Dalloway or a rewriting of... Um, you know, some sort of Emma, or I mean, and there are lots of those, and I love them. So there, I, I like the idea of rewriting these kind of old stories. And if you're a myth person, it would be so cool because the originals of them, you might love, you know, Ovid's original of something, but but all of these kind of um, adaptations, I think, would be so satisfying if you were really invested in the story. But the genius of Madeline Miller is that even if you don't know the story and you're like not really a myth kind of gal like me, she does such an incredible job of really laying out the story for you in a way that you like you end up feeling <laughs> you're like the whole time I'm giving myself like a little bit of a pat on the back because I'm like, wait, I get it. I kind of understand. In this case, it wasn't even so much that I remember it. It was just like, oh, oh, right. OK, OK. I mean, I remember bits and pieces, which I will get to. But Madeline Miller does such an incredible job of not dumbing it down too much, 
that if like the myth people, you know, won't feel sort of insulted by what she is saying, but the people who really don't know the story are, are having this incredible narrative and this incredible plot spun out for them in a way that is so satisfying and so great. The other thing I will say about, about mythology is that these ideas and these stories that have lasted literally millennia are lasting for a reason. And that is because a lot of what myths get to, this is very obvious, are these huge, huge, big issues that obviously we are still grappling with today. Um, Galatea, for example, we got some misogyny in here. We have loyalty, we have maternity, we have the idea of betrayal, we have the idea of violence, we have the idea of sex, we have all, all of this stuff that is all, and creation and um, the nature of creation and how things are created and devotion to art. I mean, like these giant, giant themes and questions that are still so valid today are writ so large in a mere 51 pages or 55 or however many. It's unbelievably great. So really appreciate, even though I'm not like a myth person, I really appreciate the fact that these very large ideas that are really the, the essence of mythology are used as a scaffolding to tell this incredible story. Here at the Foxed page, uh, one of the things that I think people are hoping to gain is this idea of kind of being a better reader. I always bridle at the better reader concept, but I fully understand the desire to be wanting to read more richly. And the easiest thing to do, and my kind of my tried and true uh, piece of uh, advice is to simply pay attention. One thing you should definitely pay attention to is the title. The title of this is so good, which is kind of funny because it's literally just Galatea, but that is so significant. So um, I actually do, I have a little bit of a knowledge about Galatea. There are many, many pieces of art. There are many adaptations, both in writing and film, all sorts of different adaptations of the myth, the myth of Pygmalion and Galatea. So um, the source material, which I did not know this until I read the afterword by Madeline Miller. Um, and, and I love the fact that the afterword obviously came after. And I love that there was no preface. I love that there was no foreword. Um, it was perfect. And I knew at the end, in the afterword, that Madeline Miller was going to sort of explain some really juicy, excellent things, which she does, and we will get to that. But I loved the idea that we, we got to enter the world of the myth and we got to see the whole story spin out for us before we actually heard kind of like what the, the actual myth, actual myth is. So it turns out it comes from Ovid. And in Ovid, it's like a, it's a part of the metamorphosis um, or metamorphoses. I don't remember if it's singular or plural. That's like how checked out I am where mythology is concerned. But Ovid wrote it. And this section called Pygmalion, which is something that um, a lot of that is in a lot of titles. Pygmalion was a it was a chunk that they took out of they they that they took out of uh, Ovid's original. So it's this kind of um, excerpt from the metamorphosis, the metamorphoses, um, and it, it involves Pygmalion, who is a sculptor, and he makes this sculpture. And in the original, in fact, there is no name for the sculpture. It is just this being. And he wants this kind of pure, um, you know, wants this pure, like beautiful statue to come to life. Uh, and in fact, most of you have read this now, so I'm going to just cut to the chase a bit. In the original, Pygmalion is um, like really off put by the sex workers, which gross. And so he wants kind of the purity of this statue. And so he prays and prays to the goddesses 
or the goddess or one goddess maybe, and um, wants the statue to come to life. And in fact, the statue comes to life. The way this pertains to my own life is the following. Um, when during my courtship, which I kept writing in the, my marginalia in the book, I have like several references to my courtship, which is so weird. Um, but my early romance with my husband, uh, we, it was right out of college. He was an English major. I was a lit major at Spanish and education. And um, he sent me a card. He was living in New York. I was teaching high school in California, English and Spanish. And he sent a postcard uh, from, you know, one, I think it was probably from the Met, wherever they have this painting. And it was a painting of Pygmalion and Galatea. And it is so beautiful. I still have it. For those of you on YouTube, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it up there. I'm going to put the front of it, but not the back. You're not going to be able to read what he wrote on that postcard to me. Um, but we have this incredible painting of this sculptor you know, bringing to life this, this statue, of course, you know, in the, in the mythology, it is a goddess who in fact brings the sculpture to life. So I knew this idea of Pygmalion and Galatea, the Pygmalion being the sculptor and, uh, uh, Galatea being the sculpture. So what's important here though, is that in Ovid originally, I learned this from Madeline Miller, there is no name for Galatea. They're simply Pygmalion. So um, that's a very big deal. Like she's literally nameless. She's voiceless. She never says anything in the myth. So you you have this um, fairly, well, not to say very misogynist thing happening in Ovid. And it is something that Madeline Miller is correcting again and again. But the first way she does it is with the title Galatea. It's unbelievable. It's simple, but it's not Pygmalion and Galatea, which is the name of the painting. And it's the name of a lot of adaptations. Um, for example, George Bernard Shaw wrote Pygmalion, which then became the uh, the inspiration for My Fair Lady, which I, um, I mean, that's a, that's a movie that has not really aged particularly well, although I love Audrey Hepburn. And then, so, I mean, but you think about those titles, like it goes from, you know, Pygmalion, just really centering the sculptor, the dude here. And then we have My Fair Lady, which is literally like my fair lady, like it's, it's possessive. It's obviously from the male perspective. And this idea of the fair lady as being the important part in part because of the, um, I like to think because of the whiteness and the purity of the sculpture is like really being foregrounded here by this idea of fairness. Like she's not dark, you know, it's my fair lady. Also, of course, meaning beautiful. And also that she's like a lady, you know, she's become a lady. She's certainly not a woman and she's not like a girl. Uh, she has become very refined, which is obviously um, culturally these days really not great. These are all precursors to Pretty Woman, which Madeline Miller also um, mentions in, in her afterward. I mean, Pretty Woman, like what a title. That sucks. So we have this kind of like we have this, this spinning out from this original of Ovid. All of the emphasis is either put on Pygmalion, who's the sculptor, or it is put on this idea of males, either sort of the male gaze or the male voice talking about my fair lady or pretty woman. Simply by naming the, the piece of fiction Galatea, um, she, it's really kind of a radical thing that she's doing and I love it. It's really telling and it's really beautiful. So we're gonna go ahead and dive into the opening of this book. We obviously have Galatea on the front of the edition, but we also, have it repeated in this really nice way right before we dive into the text. So we have Galatea. Again, it's really like helping us focus, in fact, on the fact that this is a story about this, about the woman, about the, the, the sculpture. It was almost sweet the way they worried about me. 
You're so pale, the nurse said. You must keep quiet until your color returns. I am always this color, I said, because I used to be made of stone. So good. Okay, so a few things. First of all, it's very important that this is in the first person. We are hearing Galatea's voice here. And again, Ovid didn't give her a voice. She didn't say anything. And we are getting the whole entire story from the perspective of Galatea. There's also this incredible example of her voice where she literally says, the thing is, I don't think my husband expected me to be able to talk. Uh, and we really do have this sense of her voice as being something that was unexpected and also very significant to her. So those of you who are writers out there in the Fox Page universe, um, when you have the temptation to write something in the first person, you should always ask yourself the question, why this person and why now? In this case, why this person? I mean, it's Galatea. She's got she's to speak. She's got to tell her truth. Why now? Um, we have, you know, she's not telling this story when she is, you know, it's not the beginning of her birth. Um, it is not, you know, when she first has her daughter. In fact, it is uh, the story of her, you know, hospitalization, her kind of convalescence here, and then her rebellion. So the question of why now is satisfied by the fact that we are really hearing uh, very much about her rebellion. And certainly uh, the ending of the book is climactic. And that is why we are hearing this story now. So why, you know, when you have a first person narrative, it's kind of fun. It's fun to think like, why this person and why now? Because often it will help you also um, think a little bit about how you are supposed to be focusing on whatever the plot is, whatever the story that is being told at that moment in that person's life. Okay. So we have um, this beautiful thing. Again, Madeline Miller is doing this like magical trick where if you are someone who knows a little bit about the myth, like I did, you're totally not insulted. In fact, you're like, oh, right, this is familiar to me. When she says, I used to be made of stone, um, you, you kind of get that. But if you are someone who doesn't know the myth at all, that's very uh, important. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess she used to be a statue. So there's this really beautiful um, sort of hand holding that is not insulting and not kind of, um, you know, it's not condescending in any way, shape or form, but it's really, it's very satisfying. It's also very important in the beginning when she says, it was almost sweet the way they worried about me. So right at the beginning, we have this one sentence and it's the entire paragraph. And I will always um, remind you that it's very important to look at the words at the end of a sentence or look at the sentence at the end of a paragraph, partially because, you know, as your eye is moving along in the sentence, you're kind of moving toward the end. And you know that whatever comes at the end is, is going to be kind of weighty. It's sort of what the whole momentum is moving toward. And then even if it's simply a paragraph um, or the end of a sentence, you, um, you know, even if it's not the end of a paragraph or a chapter, even if it's the end of the sentence and we have some sort of punctuation, you, there's like a little rest. Your mind has a little rest before you move on and it allows whatever that last word is to kind of linger. So it's really cool that she ends it with the way they worried about me. It's really me. Like she's really putting the focus on me. It's also though so clever and so telling because this idea, it was almost sweet. Like we know it's not sweet. And we know she's someone who's really canny. I mean, this is a, a narrator who's like seeing right through everyone in ways that are incredibly satisfying. Um, 
we don't have time to go into this, but the whole time I kept thinking about like the whole Victorian rest cure thing, like poor Galatea, they are really trying to do like that old, like Victorian rest cure, like poor Virginia Woolf, like, oh, wait, you're depressed and like maybe a little psychotic. How about you just like stay in a room by yourself for three weeks with no, like nothing to read and no one to talk to and no exercise, like that'll fix you. I mean, what were people thinking? Okay, so um, back, back to the text here. Um, we have also right from the beginning this idea of they versus me. So you're, they're setting up, um, we're very suspicious of this they. It's also so genius that the they is kind of um, nebulous. We don't really know who this they is yet, which is perfect because it's kind of this like, um, you know, this like giant kind of everyone is implicated in it in a way that I think is actually very accurate and very telling. It's so, it's so well done. Okay. And then she's really also, she knows herself. She is speaking her truth from the beginning. I am always this color, I said, because I used to be made of stone. This is a woman who's going to just be like laying out her essence again and again. And people, um, or she's holding it back in ways that are actually very important and very canny and, and, and very conniving in all sorts of great ways. Um, but then we have these people who are sort of not like, uh, not with it, not getting it. The woman smiled vaguely, pulling up the blanket. My husband had warned her that I was fanciful, that my illness made me say things that would sound strange to her. So there we know now that she's married. We know she has a husband. So it, like we're in the fourth paragraph. These are very you know short paragraphs, but we have this very important piece of information. It is told with so much economy and, and so much significance. And we know right away that her husband thinks she's sick. And we know that to a certain extent, there's some kind of collusion between the nurse and the husband. And this is not someone who sounds particularly sick. Um, so right from the beginning, you lump the husband into this idea of they and how they were worried. Also, this idea of her illness, um, you know, it's it's a little mysterious at this point. And you begin to suspect even now that, there, that you know, this, this illness that the husband is talking about is maybe some sort of like feminist uh, rebellion that he's not really appreciating. So then, of course, you know, the nurse wants her to lie back and be good and whatnot. And then we have the first of a couple of things that, that felt to me like shifts or turns. And all of them had like a little shock to them in ways that were so dynamic and so satisfying. Um, I have to say that I was like, I don't know how much I'm going to like this book because I'm just like not really a myth person. And there, there were a couple of different things, um, mostly her voice, but this little, little turn that happened on page two, right at the top of page two, like literally 30 seconds into the story, I was like, oh my God. Okay, wait, here we go. So there, and there are a series of these kind of shocks or these turns that we're going to look at because they are so um, enticing and they really propel the story forward. So um, on the bottom of page one, onto page two, this is Galatea speaking about the nurse. She had a mole on the side of her lip and I liked to watch it while she talked. Some moles are beautiful and distinctive like dappling on a horse, but some have hairs in them and look pulpy like worms and hers was this kind, which is incredible. So I love, everything about this. We are so surprised because at first you're like, okay, this is like this beautiful woman with like this beautiful white skin or whatever. I don't know how we're supposed to conceive of her in the beginning, but you really do think of her as being commanding and, and kind of um, appealing. And then she's like, oh, some moles are so beautiful. And I love to watch this one while this woman is talking. 
it's important also that the woman is talking because the nurse has this voice that, you know, that Galatea is pushing against. But then Galatea is like, oh, I love to watch this mole. And then it turns out that the mole has hairs growing out of it. It looks pulpy like a worm. And hers was this kind. So this is a woman who likes a, a mole that is pulpy and like a worm. Like those are such incredible adjectives. This is a, a, a book that's fairly spare. There's lots of dialogue. And, there, and the language, again, is kind of stripped down. It's not wordy. It's very, very clean and very sort of limpid and beautiful. So when there are details, they really stand out, especially a detail like a pulpy, worm-like mole. But the really incredible thing is that Galatea loves this. So one very important tension that is going to be set up soon and is set up largely by this really um, prominent detail is the idea that, that there, and it's a very misogynist idea, that, that there's this sense of, of like a, a, a male version of perfect beauty. And it is something that Pygmalion has attained. He has, he has made this, this absolute kind of archetype of beauty. And, you know, later when we see uh, the stretch marks on Galatea's uh, uh, stomach, well, she talks about them. Or when she talks about her hands having to look a certain way, we, we get this sense that there is this, we get a very clear sense because her husband's like, what are these crazy, like silvery lines on your stomach? Like he's just such a dick, frankly. And he's such an idiot. And he's so, it's also, it's very transparent and so amazing. He, he when he's seeing this aberration that, that is any sort of like mar on the, on the surface of this like, you know, beautiful woman, quote unquote, beautiful woman, he's totally like repelled and repulsed. Whereas our Galatea, who is in fact, like this archetypal beauty, is really drawn to this, this kind of this disfigurement, you might say, if you were like a gross misogynist person who like had a classical idea of beauty, but she's drawn to this, this mole that in most, you know, it, it's described in a way that generally would be held to be not beautiful. And yet it is something that she loves. So we have this idea of Galatea. If you see me moving around, there's like a um, handle right behind my back and it kind of, um, it's feeling like a good back stretch, but it's also uh, not super comfortable. <laughs> so we have this idea of Galatea as being literally like the incarnation of beauty. And by beauty, I mean like male objective, like weird male standards of beauty. Um, but, but also um, we have her as someone who is drawn to imperfection, which is so, it's so cool. And this is literally the very tippy top of page two. Like it's so deftly done and so economical. Okay, then of course they want her to lie back, blah, blah, blah. And then we have this other shock at the bottom of page two. She was rushing a little by then because I had mentioned the stone twice and this was gossip for the other nurses and a breathless reason to speak to the doctor. They were fucking. That's why she was so eager. So this is another one of those, those shocks, like a little bit of a turn. Like you're like, wow, Galatea is really laying it all out here. And she also has this incredible omniscience that comes up again and again in ways that are so cool. Like she doesn't in the, in the you know, the, uh, the origin story, the very original story by Ovid, she has no voice. She has no agency. In this case, not only does she have a voice and she is telling the story and writing it, but she has incredible agency um, because she's being very canny and she is planning her own escape and she's going to do something amazing by the end of this story. But also she is someone who really sees things as they are. And it's not like a supernatural thing. She like literally hears them fucking through the wall. Um, and I actually really appreciated 
we're going to talk about the language and these different registers that Madeline Miller uses so beautifully. But I also like the fact that in, in when we have these turns, um, they kind of build on on each other. So um, we have this idea of this nurse as having like this mole that Galatea is not like repulsed by. And then we have the idea of the fact that the nurse is actually fucking the doctor. And then we have like yet another kind of twist, a little a little shift of the whole thing where, where we have to kind of keep recalibrating who this uh, Galatea is. She says this. She says this about the fact that they're that the nurse and the and the um, doctor are fucking. I don't say this in a nasty way, for I don't begrudge her a good fuck if it was good, which I don't know. So I love that part too because she's like, I'm not a prude. Like it's not that I'm like judging. It's like she's like, that's cool, that's fine. It's, what she's judging is the fact that um, they are appearing to be worried about her when in fact they are really just kind of, um, you know, they're like her husband's henchmen who are really trying to to keep her down. You know, they're trying to to, to essentially keep her imprisoned um, because she is acting out in ways that are not satisfying to her husband. So we have this excellent turn where first we find out that the nurse, you know, has has this like this aspect that is actually interesting to Galatea. Then we find out that the nurse and the doctor are having sex. Then we find out, in fact, that Galatea is like, that's cool. I don't you know, I don't have a problem with the sex part, you know. So then we go on from there. Then we have um, another one of these kind of turns, another one of these uh, shifts this is on page 21. So now we're jumping way to the middle of the text. And at this point, the husband has come to the hospital. He said, you say this only because you want to see Paphos. Of course I want to see her. What kind of mother would I be if I did not? So all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, there's a daughter. They have a daughter. And again, this is almost halfway through. I will remind you um, that lots of times important things happen at the midway of a, uh, of a novel. There's something called the Freitag Triangle, where you have, you know, you have some sort of like inciting incident, then you have rising action, and then you have a climax, and then you have the the falling action and the denouement. That's kind of your like that's like the typical structure of of fiction. But really, you generally in good fiction have kind of a lot of these kind of rising and falling action, all moving toward some sort of climax usually. And um, but but it's if you imagine the the triangle as being I think it's um, isosceles. No, I think that might be where they're all equal. No, that's equilateral. Maybe it is isosceles. Anyway, you imagine it being like the rising action takes a long time going up and then we have a steep, you know, drop off. So, but what's important is to imagine that lots of times something important is happening at the middle, kind of right in the middle of that, that, that hypotenuse. Well, it's not a hypotenuse. That's across from a right angle. Um, I loved geometry, loved it. Can't remember it, but you know, loved it. Okay. So um, we have at the midpoint this huge revelation that she is in fact a mother. But it's also important that we are finding out this idea of like, what kind of mother would I be? Um, that we are finding out she is a mother when she is asking the question, what kind of a mother would I be? So it's, it's this idea, yes, she wants to see her daughter. And we find out in fact that she is a fairly devoted and loving mother, um, but it, she answers her own question in an interesting way. Of course I want to see her. What kind of a mother would I be if I did not? Cold and shameless. That is not how you and the goddess made me. So we have this really um, important thing here. Like she's not, 
Um, she is a mother who, who we find out in the story, there, there are enough interactions with her daughter where we believe she is a dedicated and, and, you know, like a, a loving mother. Um, but this idea of, of being cold and shameless, you know, she may or may not be that kind of a mother. And in fact, she and her daughter, it's pathos, pathos, um, maybe pathos because of like pathos. Um, but she and pathos, that sounds better than pathos. Um, she and Paphos have this very nice thing, and lots of times Paphos, because she has a tutor, is teaching her mother things. So they have this very sort of, also, um, lest we forget, uh, Galatea had Paphos like as soon as she became like a like an entity, as soon as she became human, or like as soon as she became real and not a statue, she had this daughter. So um, we have this sense of her as as not having a self aside from the the sort of lifetime of her daughter. So um, it's it's this very interesting kind of maternal thing where you have her as like almost like a peer to her daughter, but then of course she does this self-sacrificing thing um, at the end, and and in fact it, it is very um, you know dedicated to her daughter's well-being because of the idea uh, that, that that she in fact needs to kill the father of the daughter. You know what's amazing too is all of that is um, you know in the original in the Ovid. Um, and, and in all of the adaptations, you know, the, the Galatea comes to life and they live happily ever after. It is so cool the way that Madeline Miller is building on that to say like, wait, what? No. And we're going to look at the end. Madeline Miller articulates this very well, this how, how you have to really accept a lot of misogynist and a lot of really yucky um, things about the male gaze and about conceptions of beauty and like purity and a lot of like shaming of sex workers. You have to accept all of that in order to think that they would live happily ever after. And so Madeline Miller, of course, is really turning that on its head by making, um, making Galatea, in fact, into a murderer you know, and she murders, in fact, because she is motivated to save her daughter and and this new statue, what might be a stand in for the daughter and what might be a second daughter to Pygmalion. She, in fact, kills him in order to save these these younger uh, women, particularly Paphos. OK, so um, we have we have this turn where suddenly we find out that she is a mother and these kinds of like shocks and these turns are so incredibly well done. Again, tons of economy. They sort of come out of nowhere, but but they're said in these ways that it's very sort of like, oh, well, you know, like I'm made of stone and oh, my husband put me in the hospital. Oh, and the nurse is fucking the doctor. Oh, and wait, I have a daughter. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of like melded in in ways that are really fitting and really beautiful and economical and effective but they're also shocking. One crucial aspect that I do want to talk about a bit is this idea of uh, the voice of Galatea. So um, there is this concept that was developed by a Russian theorist named Mikhail Bakhtin, and it is called heteroglossia. Heteroglossia just means lots of different voices. And I loved this when I first learned about it in graduate school, because it's something that I think you sense as a reader, but once you know the term for it, and once you know that this is kind of this phenomenon that exists in literature, you really appreciate it more and can really lean into it. So this heteroglossia is this idea, and, and it's also very kind of radical politically. It's this idea that that an author will use many, many different registers of voice. Um, it's a little bit like code switching, um, you know, in terms of, of like your voice as being a little bit like a chameleon depending on your audience. 
So if you can imagine a writer uh, feeling like they have sort of one audience, like if you think of Jane Austen, for example, there's not a lot of um, heteroglossia in those books because she is a woman of a certain, um, you know, milieu who is writing for other people of the same milieu. I mean, I might be too quick to say that. I don't, I'm actually not a giant Jane Austen fan. I like her work. I actually really love some of the kind of spinning out some of the, the um, what do you call that with TV? Um, like when they do like a show, a spin, a spinoff. Um, I like some of the spinoffs. I loved uh, Longbourn, which was that that book um, by Joe Baker. Um, I like all the kind of reimaginings of the other Bennett sister. That was a good. That was a good one. Um, what Mrs. Bennett said. There are all these different things that I like. I like them. They're like a little bit more interesting to me. This is blasphemy uh, than some of the original Jane Austen. But Jane herself, you know, she would have different registers if we have, for example, um, you know, one of the, the footmen is talking to Mr. Darcy, they're going to be talking in different registers. What is really interesting, though, is when um, you have multiple registers, so many, many that are being used, for example, by uh, one narrative voice, because you, you have that person becoming suddenly very multivalent. You see them as a very rounded character, or it's very surprising um, because you're kind of expecting one register and then you slip into another and that can feel very political. It can feel very um, kind of exciting. And it can also, um, again, really sort of shift your perspective on the character. And Madeline Miller does this so well. So we're going to take a look at some of these. So we already saw one example of this when she says uh, the nurse is fucking the doctor. I mean, the use of fuck there is definitely a register shift. So that is a word that is very forceful. I think in lots of ways, it seems kind of unladylike. Um, and, and, and it's very modern to have a woman using it. So it's it's doing so much work because it's bringing us into the 21st century, which is really a, a very important aspect of this story. It feels very immediate. It feels very now. It feels very contemporary in ways that, that really bring the myth to life. But we also um, have have this idea too of her as being someone, you know, in the beginning, she's like, oh, it's, it's almost sweet that they're worried about me. Like she seems like a certain kind of um, somewhat tractable, somewhat kind of accommodating woman. And then like when she's like, oh, she's fucking the doctor, you're like, oh, mm, this is like a slight, we're having a slight shift of who this person is. So then um, we have a couple more examples that, that are in somewhat the same vein, but help us see her as, as sort of her true essence. So um, the, the nurse is trying to get her to lie back on page eight. The tea is the thing they give me when I won't lie back, and I hate it, for they sit beside me until I drink it all, and then my head aches and my tongue hurts, and I piss the bed. So there's a certain violence to I piss the bed. And there are lots of alternatives. It could be, you know, I wet the bed. It could be, I, I, I wet myself. I mean, they're all, I urinate. I mean, there are all sorts of different options here. Um, but I piss the bed. First of all, it's onomatopoeic. I love it. I piss the bed. I mean, that's not even like, I don't even say like I piss like that. Just there's, there's a forcefulness and like an anger that really helps us see her as a forceful person. Also, especially in this context, because it feels somewhat rebellious, uh, where these nurses are concerned. This also, there's so many excellent uh, echoes of Circe. So Circe, of course, was like a, um, you know, like a modern day herbalist. And so she had lots of teas and drafts and things that she could use. I think that's right. You know, my memory is so bad. Um, but this idea of this tea and being forced to drink this tea is reminiscent of Circe. There are a couple of those throughout Galatea that I'm like, oh my God, I need to go reread Circe. It was that book. Unbelievable. That was a book. Uh, that I lent to a 20-year-old during COVID and she stayed up all night long reading it. 
oh my God, shout out, shout out to that 20 year old who stayed up all night long reading it. Um, it, it. It's just an incredible, incredible book. Okay, on page 12, we have another example of this kind of heteroglossia. So this was a little bit more subtle, but I liked it. Her husband is now visiting and he wants her to be resting. He says, ah, my beauty is asleep. A few times in the past, I had let out a little snore at that moment just for verisimilitude, but he did not like that at all. So I love this so much. Verisimilitude, we've actually talked about quite a bit. Talk about a different register. Verisimilitude is simply the idea that um, it feels lifelike. A world feels lifelike um, and feels very real. And it's a really big deal in fiction, as you can imagine, because you need a world to feel real when in fact you're making the whole thing up. It's a very big deal in mythology, frankly. So he says, oh, my beauty is asleep, which you can, I mean, that speaks volume. We hear the husband saying things like that. First of all, she's not asleep. She, he's, he's an idiot, which we see again and again and again in this book. For, he's either being a dick or he's being a, just a fool. Either one, um, just often both at the same time. In this case, he's like, oh, my beauty is sleeping, which is what he always wants. You know, he always wants control. He wants her to be passive. And, and in fact, sleep is kind of the best case scenario. And then this idea of letting out a snore. Um, I had let out a little snore. There's something about that. I think because to me, it sounds like I let out a fart. Um, this idea of letting out a snore, like you could say I snored or, or I, 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 you know, I, I, I gently snored. There are lots of ways to say that. But I let out a snore to me feels very like um, ribald and sort of like gutterish. And that's like not even a word. But, you know, like it feels very kind of um, like, how can I say that? Like not refined. And then the idea of, so I let out a little snore is very kind of casual. It's very intimate. It's very like kind of off the cuff. And then we have just for verisimilitude, which is a totally different register. Like now we're talking about like a very sophisticated kind of literary analysis moment. Um, and so she's, she's able to span these and we're able to think of her as someone who can say piss and fuck, but also someone who says verisimilitude. We really trust her from the beginning as being not only omniscient, but also incredibly bright and really wily. Um, at one point I wrote like a woman's wiles and I wrote it down because I was like, that is a terrible phrase because wily is like kind of like untrustworthy and like conniving all of these words for like doing things that are rebellious, um, that were occurring to me are all very pejorative. I mean, it's all this stuff but but they're actually talking about rebellion and they're talking about subversion and, and being subversive in ways that are very powerful. And Galatea is subversive in ways that are very powerful and amazing. But it's funny because I was like, oh, a woman's wiles. And then I was like, why? Why is that occurring to me? Like, that's so, it's so misogynist. Um, it's also funny to me that a woman's wiles, that's like a phrase, you know, it's like heaving bosom, you know, like you kind of see it as a, as a, as a joint um, thing. Like, I don't think we talk about man's wiles, um, which, you know, misogyny, uh, but, but I really love, um, back to heteroglossia, I really love the way that we see all of these different uh, ways that she is subversive. And part of it is even just in all of these different registers that she is using. I want to take a minute to talk about all of the different times that uh, Pygmalion is just such an idiot. 
And um, there are many, there are many, many times. Again, and every time he's being an idiot, he's also being kind of a dick. This is sort of um, one of the culminating um, moments of him just being terrible. And it's really amazing because we're also at the same time seeing the power of Galatea. On the bottom of uh, 14, this is when he's actually um, bringing her to life. Um, this is, we've, we've gone back in time a bit and he is uh, talking to the goddess about whether or not she might actually be coming to life. He shook his head as though to clear it no, I am imagining things, or perhaps the sun has fallen on her and warmed the marble. There was no sun in the room, of course, but it wasn't the time to say this. It's so good because she, we know, I mean, he's being a fool. He's like, oh, perhaps she's warm because of the sun. And Galatea's like, um, there's no, there's no sun. There is no sun in here. So she has this real power, but she also at this point is voiceless. She cannot say that, but she is not saying it because she understands it's not the time to say it. This is when she is being brought to life. She is sort of beginning to have some agency. So she's so smart and she's also omniscient. It's, it's the coolest thing that Madeline Miller is doing here because we have this sense of like her strength and her omniscience and her ability to know when to say things and when not. So um, it, it's just an absolute incredible uh, sort of embodiment of feminism and of voice and of agency. There's this sense of really understanding his limitations and understanding her own power. Then uh, down a little bit further, live, he said, oh, live my life, my love, live. And that's when I'm supposed to open my eyes like a dewy fawn and see him poised over me like the sun and make a little gasping noise of wonder and gratitude. And then he fucks me. So again, we have this, she's so canny. She's so smart. She knows exactly what's going on. There is a lot of performance in this book and she understands what the performance is supposed to be. She understands the point. She understands the ways that she's supposed to be acting you know, this, this perfect beauty. And she's doing it largely uh, in lots of ways for sort of self-motivation so she can become fully actualized and she can have her own agency. But in this case, we do actually see this violence. Um, and there's a lot of violence with a lot of these words, you know, fuck and piss, these words that she is using. Um, and in fact, there is real violence. At one point, he grips her so hard. In fact, that is such a cool... Um, it's a moment that's very important, it's not cool, um, where he grips her so hard that she can't speak. So you have this really important sense of, of the violence as robbing her of her voice. He, um, he also grips her hard enough that he leaves bruises and talks about what a beautiful canvas she is because of these beautiful marks on her body. So again, you see this, this idea of um, you know how much an artist appreciates his own art, which is weird. Um, or it's not weird, but it's a little self-aggrandizing. But you also have him as, as as just seeing her as a thing that he has created and seeing her as as sort of a flat canvas on which he is literally leaving marks. It is so well done. I can't believe that she was able to get all of this into 55 pages. It's stunning. But here we have this idea of, of this violence that he is doing um, to her with the sex and then also, um, you know, this, again, like the violence of the phrase, let's reread it. This is what she's supposed to do. Make a little gasping noise of wonder and gratitude and then he fucks me. So again, we have this sentence that ends with fuck, but also with me, um, it, it, you know, it's it's somewhat reminiscent of that very first one. The, the emphasis is on her, but also in fact, this kind of, um, you know, violence. We get the sense, you know, earlier she said she doesn't begrudge a good fuck. We don't get a sense that this was a good one. Um, and then, really importantly, right after that, 
After I lay against his damp shoulder, I said, my love, I miss you. So throughout this 55-page story, um, which again, it's like very uh, short. It's probably, if you condensed it, be like, I don't know, 10 pages. But we have um, this really interesting way that she is playing with verb tenses. So this idea, um, my love, I miss you. She's not saying, I missed you. She's saying, I miss you. Like she's literally pressed up against him and saying that she misses him. It's so, it's so good. There are a number of different times where she is playing with verb tense in ways that are so telling. But this idea of missing him, it's like he's not, he's not there. He is no longer important to her. Um, she's beginning to separate from him. It's just absolute genius. And it is conveyed literally just by saying, I miss you instead of I missed you. It's, it's so genius and so economical and so smart. One of the strongest aspects of the novel, in my opinion, is the way that Madeline Miller deals with, or portrays, I should say, uh, motherhood and maternity. So um, we know that in the story of uh, the original Ovid story of the metamorphosis, uh, there, that Galatea had no name, she had no voice. And so Madeline Miller, and, and that they lived happily ever after. And Madeline Miller has given her not only um, you know, a voice and a very strong one with lots of registers, but she has also given her a name and it is the title of the book. But this idea of the happily ever after is obviously very complicated, but this idea of happily ever after is deeply complicated by this book where in fact what happens is Galatea ends up killing Pygmalion. So it's actually not in fact uh, the happily ever after. What I love about uh, the, the treatment and this kind of uh, development of the story in the hands of Miller is that she also gives the two of them a daughter, a daughter who in fact can read and a daughter who has tutors and a daughter who is strong and willful and who is going to, sorry, those are my dogs barking, uh, and, and someone who is very adventuresome and independent and, and definitely not afraid of her father. So I want to look at some of the beautiful prose and a few of the uh, important moments where we really do see the strength of the daughter because, um, you know, quite a bit of this short story is in fact devoted to, uh, to this daughter. Not only does Madeline Miller give this sort of maternal um, experience to Galatea and make it in fact very central in lots of ways, but it, it, it sort of comes with her birth. So um, we have this beautiful beginning of this um, the, sort of what happens. You know, he Pygmalion brings the statue to life um, because the goddess helps him and he has been praying to the goddess. She comes to life. Um, he fucks her. And then we have this. I conceived that very first time, a moment after I was born. And though I had been stone, and though the goddess made me, my pregnancy was real enough. And I was tired and sick, and my feet were too swollen for the delicate golden sandals he liked to see them in. It made him angry, but it did not stop him from pushing me onto the bed or up against a wall. And I worried that because of it, I would have not one child, but a whole litter at once, like cats in the street. So I love this idea in part, I mean, it's gnarly. It's like not, not a great thing that's happening here. But it does remind us, in fact, that we are talking about a mythological world where potentially, you know, there's that one myth. I can't remember who it is, but like um, a woman has babies. Maybe it's Medea. No, it's definitely not Medea. Um, I don't think. Um, where like she's had sex with two different men and so she has two different babies from the two different men. Um, so you have this idea of, of lots of different things being possible. And in fact, the idea of, of uh, um, you know, of, of subsequent sexual intercourse, uh, you know, producing a whole litter of babies is not 
out of this world. So in a, in a text and in a story that is grounded very much in reality and is very, uh, feels very sort of contemporary and very possible, it's important to have these reminders every once in a while that we are talking about myth and we are talking about something, you know, we're talking about a statue having come to life. But we also are looking really uh, clearly here at the violence of her husband. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about how awful he is, but it's really, it's actually very excellent the way that he is consistently both an idiot and also a total jerk. So you have this very consistent way um, that the reader is feeling a lot of sympathy for Galatea, and we are very happy about her empowerment, uh, but we are not at all sympathetic with, um, you know, with our Pygmalion. Frankly, there's violence in the fact that he has kind of sequestered her away in this hospital. That's kind of a very, a very uh, subtle sort of violence. The other thing that's beautiful is that the two of them together then have this daughter, and the daughter seems to have in inherited all of um, all of Galatea's strengths, and she's in fact not at all scared of her uh, of her father. So we have this. My daughter was beautiful and stone pale and born in a summer that was so viciously hot the calves died in the fields, but she and I were always perfectly cool rocking in our chair together. So I love it that it's my daughter. It's not our daughter. It's definitely my daughter. So she sees this daughter very much as a, um, you know, an extension of herself. The daughter, in fact, is cool the way that she is. So you have this sense of both of them being made of stone. Um, and I like, you know, she's, uh, uh, Madeline Miller here is making this all up for us. This is not part of any myth, but she's adding it. And then she adds these sorts of details, like the fact that the summer was viciously hot uh, and that the um, calves were dying in the fields. That kind of detail really adds nice verisimilitude, which is something that um, literally they, she, she talks about here. She's going to add a little snore. She's going to let out a snore. Uh, for verisimilitude. Well, this kind of detail is the really excellent verisimilitude that Madeline Miller is is giving to us, this idea of it, the, the summer being very hot, but the two of them being very cool. It's also notable that the two of them are cool when they are rocking in their chair together. So you get this sense of real sort of, um, not symbiosis necessarily, but definitely a close bond between the two of them, which is just really lovely. And, you know, they walk together and everyone thinks that the daughter is so beautiful. Uh, and a little later, we have this. When she got older still, I insisted on a tutor, though my husband thought that would ruin her. No, I said, she will be useful to her husband as I am not. So it's the sense of her as, um, you know, again, Galatea is kind of like flattering and playing a little bit of a trick here on Pygmalion. But this idea that her daughter is very bright, she recognizes that and in fact wants a tutor. Then, of course, um, the tutor is looking at Galatea, and Pygmalion gets very jealous. Jealousy is, um, we see it at a number of different very important points in the, the short story. But the tutor is dismissed, and instead there is a governess who is brought in. Uh, and you get the sense that a governess specifically means that there, obviously it means a, a female, but it also means uh, some. it's like a slightly less high, in other words, a lower, a lower level of education. And so, uh, in fact, um, Galatea gets another tutor for uh, her daughter because the tutoring is so important. So then we go along and we have um, a couple of really flattering and very sort of plain spoken descriptions of the daughter that really show that she's inherited the very best of her mother. It, we have a physical strength in Paphos that's really very beautiful. 
Um, on page 30, uh, Paphos says, or our narrator says of Paphos, she was taller than the other girls and long-limbed. She wasn't afraid of him. So we get this sense that Paphos is really not at all afraid of her father. And in fact, what she starts to do is teach Galatea, starts to teach her mother how to write so um, and, and how to read, which uh, Galatea had not known how to do. And after Paphos learns from the tutor, then Paphos is teaching her mother. And I love this idea because we have this idea of, of Galatea as having a voice which is a new thing that, that um, you know, is, is added, in fact, because Ovid's original does not have a, uh, a voice. So Madeline Miller's adding the idea of, of Galatea having a very strong voice that speaks in all of these registers. But then her daughter not only has a voice, but in fact has this writing, has this ability to write things, has an ability to learn. So it's sort of like taking language one step further and it's really beautiful to think of kind of the evolution through these, you know, one generation, but it is evolution nonetheless. So you have this really great sense of the, um, of, you know, the, the, the daughter as sort of, um, you know, being even more uh, strong and educated and being able to express herself even uh, more sort of thoroughly than Galatea herself. So that's a really beautiful thing. It's also, there's that little plot point because of course, um, when, uh, when at the very end of the book, when we have the culminating um, event, uh, it's that beautiful thing where Galatea um, spills the sand on the floor and writes her name so that Paphos will understand who is responsible for the murder of her asshole father, which I have to say, um, the, the, the like thing of sand, the bucket of sand that Paphos keeps next to her bed. It was the only thing in the whole entire book where I was like, this seems a tiny bit contrived. It seems to me that Madeline Miller has had this bucket of sand in the room of Paphos um, as it just seems a little convenient in terms of like a, something that, that Galatea is able to write her name in. There, um, she has the detail that that Paphos has this bucket of sand because she likes to. It reminds her of the smell of the ocean, which I mean, at least we have uh, an understanding. There is some sort of you know sort of reason for this, but seemed a little bit far fetched to me. Although fine, because it's actually such a beautiful thing. You know, you have to think about it a little bit as a reader, which I like. Um, you know, she writes her name and then she uh, goes out and, um, you know, feigns another pregnancy, which here she is using maternity, of course, you know, this this experience that she has had, she is using it in a way that is very manipulative on the part of, um, you know, uh, so that she can get out of, of the, the hospital slash prison. So she's using maternity also as a tool in a way that's really ingenious. And of course, that is going to result ultimately in the death of her husband, uh, Pygmalion. And she, of course, wants her daughter to know that that she has been responsible for it. So it's, it, you know, it, it takes, the reader has to think a few, a few steps there about why it is that Galatea is writing her name in the sand by the bed, but it's just so beautifully done. So I want to um, take a look at this violence. Um, we have on page, on 23, we have uh, that violence that I alluded to earlier. She says, I couldn't think to speak. That is how hard he held me. So then we have a little bit, um, a little down. Uh, he grabbed the neck of my dress and yanked, 
but he was not as strong as he wished to be, and it did not tear. He yanked again and again, then pushed me to the floor and held me there, yanking, until the fabric gave way and I was naked. So you have, um, there, there are a number of different, uh, you know, passages that really, um, in, in a very short text, there's quite a bit that is dedicated uh, to this violence, to this violence that is um, is really a big part of how Pygmalion is interacting, of course, with Galatea. So we also, um, you know, sort of the, the, the reason why she feels like she ultimately needs to murder her uh, husband is not, in fact, because of this uh, violence that he is doing to her. It is, in fact, because she is concerned about a 10-year-old. So the, the Pygmalion, in this gross way, starts, um, you know, insinuating that he is essentially going to make a lover of a 10-year-old. And there is a statue of this young uh, girl. So, um, it, and of course, at this point, the daughter, uh, Paphos, is also 10 years old. So you have this sense of the daughter as being in danger and, and of the father as, you know, going to do violence, in fact, on, um, you know, young girls. So we really are very justified. I mean, in many, many ways, he's really villainous and really, you know, a, a bad, bad dude. So we are very happy when Galatea, in fact, um, you know, resorts even to violence in order to stop him in his tracks. Okay, I want to um, take a look quickly at the, at the afterward. I mentioned before how happy I was uh, that, that Madeline Miller gives us this experience of reading through her version of the myth and giving us just enough so that we have a sense of, you know, what is, uh, what's up. You know, the fact that Galatea used to be a statue and was brought to life by Pygmalion, the sculptor. Uh, but then, you know, so much of it is her own invention. And I did not know, uh, you know, in my mind, I was because she at one point describes this kind of uh, the, the hospital as being or, you know, this place where she is being held by the nurse and the doctor as, as being sort of up on a cliff. And I was like, oh, my gosh, maybe Galatea is one of these uh, goddesses who was like held up, you know, in a like an eagle's airy or was held up in some sort of keep. But then um, I, I, don't, I still don't know. Maybe that is part of Ovid. I don't know. I don't know what she has borrowed and what she hasn't. But I really enjoyed the fact she, that she later gives us, in fact, um, Ovid's version, and she does it very clearly. So on 51, Ovid's story goes like this. The sculptor Pygmalion is horrified by seeing prostitutes, whom he condemns as obscene and shameless. He is so disgusted that he spurns all female companionship and instead begins to carve a woman out of ivory. He makes her more perfect than a real woman could be and falls in love with her. So we have this idea of, of you know, this perfection. Um, Ovid lingers over descriptions of Pygmalion stroking the statue's body, kissing it, caressing it with his fingers. At last, he prays to the goddess Venus, and she brings the ivory woman to life. Pygmalion embraces her, and the woman, feeling his kisses, blushes deeply, in contrast to the prostitutes who began the story, who are incapable of blushing. The two marry and produce a child. They live, theoretically, happily ever after. So I, as I said before, um, I, I received during my courtship uh, a postcard with a, a really beautiful painting of Pygmalion and Galatea on the front. And so um, I, I, I do feel a certain sort of investment in this myth, although I did not really understand because I didn't really know the full story 
especially not the stuff with the sex workers. I did not understand um, really how misogynist it was. I hadn't thought through, you know, the ivory part. I hadn't thought through a lot of different pieces of it. But um, Madeline Will Miller very happily thinks through uh, this for me. So um, literally in the in the marginalia, I say, ha, my courtship, because in fact, uh, it was a very misogynist thing. Had I known, I would have like rejected my boyfriend at the time. Just kidding. I would not have. But um, I did not understand the implications here. So she says, still others, myself included, have been disturbed by the deeply misogynist implications of the story. Pygmalion's happy ending is only happy if you accept a number of repulsive ideas. That the only good woman is one who has no self beyond pleasing a man, the fetishization of female sexual purity, the connection of the snowy ivory with perfection, the elevation of male fantasy over female reality. Galatea does not speak at all in Ovid's version. Even more tellingly, she is not even given a name. She is only called the woman. She is meant to be a compliant object of desire and nothing more. So I was like, whoops, uh-oh, maybe not the romantic thing that I thought it was, but it's such a beautiful story. She also has a little thing in the afterword about how she had been thinking about it for some time. And then on a thunderbolt, the story arrived, it, you know, she was lying in bed or something and she hopped up and, and started typing and sort of never, never looked back, which I mean, gosh, talk about divine inspiration. I, you know, as, as, as a writer, um, that just really makes me jealous because the idea of having such a gorgeous story pop into your head like that, um, is, is really, really something. So, um, I do want to look finally at the close. The last paragraph of this short story is just so beautiful. We aren't going to read the whole thing, uh, but but you you have this sense of all of these different sort of components have been so well woven. The idea of, of the importance of her hands, the, the heaviness of her body, the imperfections, the weight of her, her volition, her agency, all of this stuff becomes very important at the very end of the book. So we're going to look at the last paragraph. I'm assuming that you've read this, but this is when she is um, she drags him into the into the ocean. He had no chance, really. He was only flesh. We fell through the darkness, and the coolness slid up my neck and bled the color from my lips and cheeks. And from what we read, we now understand the importance of this blushing. She's sort of returning to her natural state and is not feeling like she needs to blush. Uh, on behalf of her husband. I thought of Paphos and how clever she was. I thought of her stone sister, peaceful on her couch. So here we have, it's such a beautiful evocation of these two daughters. So we know Ovid, um, in Ovid's tale, they have the one, but Madeline Miller has given her this new daughter. So you have this sense of, of, of her understanding that her legacy is secure and her daughters will go on to be safe out of the clutches of their father. We fell through the currents, and I thought of how the crabs would come for him, climbing over my pale shoulders. The ocean floor was sandy and soft as pillows. I settled into it and slept. So we have this beautiful thing. I mean, on some level, she's she's ivory. I always thought of her as marble, but apparently she's ivory. Um, but you have this sense, you know, she's not going to be eternal either, but she's certainly going to last longer uh, than than Pygmalion. So you have this idea of human frailty compared to to you know this this sort of enduring nature that she has, and in fact that she has given to her daughters. So they also have this kind of enduring um, 
you know, ability and they are clever and they are strong and they are not afraid of their fathers or other men. So you, you really have a sense that her legacy is intact. And that, that is the end of the short story. But I really want to close today with the very end of Madeline Miller's uh, afterward because it is so well done. So she says this, for millennia, there have been men who react with horror and disgust to women's independence, men who desire women yet hate them and who take refuge in fantasies of purity and control. What would it be like to live with such a man as your husband? There are too many today who could answer that, but that is the mark of a good source myth. It is water so wide it can reach across centuries. I hope you enjoyed the swim. So I love this. It's it's so it's so excellent how you know we've just witnessed this drowning and then she she's bringing us back to the idea of the water and this idea that that the the sort of source myth that this thing that is so eternal and is asking such giant questions and questions that endure and that are still just as germane today you know that 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 is kind of water that can span these centuries it's actually very beautiful to think that you know like the Ionian Sea and the Aegean Sea and all of those um, you know seas the Mediterranean, all of that around Greece, you know, all of those oceans still in fact exist. But it's really beautiful here uh, that, that Madeline Miller ends with this. I hope you enjoyed the swim because we are, um, you know, we're not drowning. We're not lying at the bottom of the ocean. We are in fact, I think, largely women, although kudos to any of you men out there reading Galatea. Uh, but it really is a very powerful statement about what it is to be a woman. And I love this idea of her um, you know, giving a little bit of a nod to her readers, who in fact are um, strong women who have been made just a little stronger by their reading of Galatea, and in fact now are, um, you know, having enjoyed the swim. So I hope that you um, have really loved this little deep dive, no pun intended, uh, into Galatea. And if you have not read Circe, I'm actually so jealous because it is so, so good. I also loved Song of Achilles. Um, Circe is just an absolute. It, I don't, I've never recommended it to anyone who did not like it. I mean, I literally don't. It, 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 it's so, so good. And again, I'm not a myth person. So um, after you have read Galatea, definitely check out Circe or vice versa. And again, the beautiful thing about Galatea and about something so short is that you can go back and reread this, um, perhaps with you know some nuance that you have just gained as you are rereading. And, and it's just such a beautiful thing to be able to sort of... Um, re-immerse yourself into the waters uh, of this beautiful story and and to be able to really feel like you have been able to really comprehend the whole thing and you've really sort of gotten everything uh, that you wanted to out of this beautiful gem by Madeline Miller. So happy reading. Mm -hmm.